You're listening to The Emulsion Podcast, a show that informs and inspires the restaurant industry to work, live, and create better. My name is Justin Kana, and I'm a chef and media producer with almost 10 years of experience in award-winning restaurants all over the world. I created this show as a way to give back, to inspire the next generation, and to help you progress your career. The Emulsion Podcast is sponsored by you folks, and Patreon is where that happens. If you're here as a return listener and you enjoyed the episode you just came from and happen to want to support more episodes, I'd really appreciate it. Go ahead and check out patreon.com slash justincana. Thanks in advance if you can. I totally understand if you can't. Free ways you can support this show include leaving a like or comment on this video, filling up all five stars on iTunes, or simply sharing an episode with a friend. This is a solo episode. Yep, it's just you and me. I'll be dishing up a curated list of articles, happenings, and headlines that I've been paying attention to over the past few days, and then season them with my perspective and opinions on the latest industry stories. If you want to dive deeper into any of the stories I cover today, full show notes are available on justincona.com slash podcast. And if you come across a story you'd like me to feature in a future episode, shoot it to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find you. Let's get ready to welcome your host for this episode, Justin Kana. What is up, folks? I'm so happy you're here. This is a obviously a dramatic left turn for the Emulsion podcast. We're live on Instagram this time. I've got the nice camera here set up recording video. I've also got a new piece of gear for you folks. Hopefully you noticed a slight bump in audio quality in the last three or so videos that I posted on YouTube. I've been putting aside some cash for the past few months from you folks on Patreon, and this is what it went towards, the brand new Video Mic Pro Plus from Rode. So I'm very excited to keep the minimalist train going. I've just got this one mic here to record all my uh, videos, some interview stuff as like a boom mic, as well as my soothing voice for this podcast. I'm very, very happy with this purchase so far, and you folks made it possible. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I'm always down to let you know where your support is going. Today's beverage, I'm on the tail end of a uh, Four Sigmatic cup of coffee, um, mushroom coffee. It's a Late afternoon, I should actually not be drinking this right now, but I am doing a video shoot later tonight, so I might have to be up a little bit later, but that's what we're drinking. So first up in restaurant design porn news, not restaurant porn news, that's, we're not going to talk about that. Uh, I got to show you this dining room, and for those of you that are watching on YouTube after the fact, you'll actually get to see it now. But Elia and Jung Yoon Park, the guys from the Attaboy restaurant in New York City, just opened a stunner of a restaurant just down the road from their flagged ship. Uh, so Attaboy was their first restaurant. The second restaurant is called Atto Mix, which I guess sounds like Atomics. Um, and minimalism drooling aside, if you guys are able to look it up right now, you should. It's called Atto Mix. It's actually a fascinating case study in business model mentality. So what they essentially did is they started with the more casual Attaboy to get everybody's feet wet with kind of fun, approachable Korean food. Elia saying, quote, Korean cuisine was not really as popular three years ago, so we wanted to start with a casual restaurant to reach out to everyone in a more accessible way first, end quote. So Atomix, I still don't know what to call this. Is it Atomix or Atomix? Anybody on Instagram that's listening that knows should let me know. But they serve a 10-course tasting menu, so it's very seafood-heavy. There's eight savory and two dessert, and it's all very inspired by Korean comfort food meets that very minimal aesthetic and essentially giving a kaiseki experience, but kind of with a different palette of paints to paint with, if that makes sense. So definitely check out the photos, um, but just from my first impression of seeing the dishes, this seems like a combo of like Jimbocho Den in Tokyo and Single Thread having a baby, but because they're both Japanese, Single Thread cheated on Jimbocho Den 
then with a Korean person, and then there's this little like sprinkling of like chujang and fish cakes all throughout the menu. But you know, all jokes aside, they do do a fried chicken uh, wing stuffed with rice dish, so that's why I made that reference. But they do do a really gorgeous langoustine dish that looks very Japanese inspired. Um, but that's just my frame of reference, right? Like if if it all goes according to plan. I will actually be in Seoul in October, uh, so I'll definitely have my horizons broadened as far as Korean food goes. I feel like it's very similar also with um, Indian food, that there's the very uh, staple dishes that people like automatically uh, assume that that's what that cuisine is, but there's so much more to it. So I look at this plating of food and the ingredients that they're using, and I automatically think Japanese. Um, the same might happen if you go to a Middle Eastern country and you see like uh, something served with rice and flatbread, and you think, oh, that's like Indian food, but it's completely different. But the 10-course menu is going to cost you $175. They've got some really, really talented bartenders and psalms from uh, places like the Nomad and Dead Rabbit to take care of the beverages. And that also that menu comes with a $135 wine pairing option as well. So overall, I'm really, really fascinated by the thoughtfulness of this kind of project, right? So number one, it's always satisfying to see uh, someone that's been working on something for a really long time and actually see it through to fruition. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I'm also fascinated by the reverse of the traditional model for uh, fine dining establishment, right? So many of us are taught that the fine dining spot comes first, get all the attention and the accolades and the awards, and then, and only then, can you open your kind of bistro or casual spot to be the cash cow to actually make some money. But these guys did it in the reverse. Uh, they did the casual spot first with Attaboy and then Atto Mix. I still don't know if I'm saying it right, and I'm really self-conscious about it. Uh, but there's an intense amount of humility and patience that goes into an execution like that, so I'm very, very impressed. But number two, the layout of the restaurant is also super interesting to me. So if you creep on the photos, there's so much space in this restaurant. I, I Maybe I'm just reading it wrong, but I, to me, the way that I heard it worded, there's between two and three floors to this place. So they've got a lounge, a bar, as well as the 16-seat counter. So no matter where you are in the space, you're getting that clean and minimal aesthetic, but it's designed to give guests kind of a flow through the restaurant. The article is saying, quote, diners will walk onto the second floor in the bar area where they can grab a drink before descending into the lounge area. That's where the $175 meal begins with some snacks, followed by the full coursed affair in the 16 seat dining room that's set up like a stage so it's like a it's like a rectangle if that makes sense so following dinner a staircase near the kitchen sends diners full circle back up into the bar area if so they choose uh, or deposits them back on the street end quote so for everyone that isn't familiar, it's an insanely good way to make money as a restaurant, right? Like I've sent so many friends of mine to the like the salon at Per Se or the bar at 11 Madison Park. You don't have to drop $350, but you still get to see the restaurant and interact with the staff and order some drinks or some snacks. Uh, Anna and I actually used to go to the bar at Meadowood when we lived in Napa um, all, the, all the time because I felt like it, it felt like being pampered. It felt like going out to a nice dinner, but we would only pay like between 45 and 60 bucks a person. And we would drink some really nice sparkling wine and eat a bunch of canapes and look out on the beautiful property. It was awesome. So especially if you're in New York, if you're going to a show or a late dinner reservation, to have a space that looks that good serving really, really thoughtful drinks and like fun Korean food. On paper, this spot looks like it's going to be a home run. If David Chang was not so ugly delicious and made Momofuku Ko what it is, this is like a more refined and polished Korean tasting menu spot. And it's not to say that Ko is like dirty or anything. It just Momofuku Ko doesn't feel like a David Chang restaurant. Does that make sense? Like the closest comparison I can give is like comparing like Drake to J. Cole. 
right? Like there are fans of both, but some people prefer one to the other based on their own personal taste, but they're both essentially doing the same thing. Uh, that's just my hip hop head and my industry crossover brain talking to each other. So next up, the OG food writer that broke the story about the Mario Batali fiasco we covered a few weeks ago has another article out. It is called the quote-unquote predators in the kitchen. So it it dives deep into several case studies of women being harassed. It's an example of, there's an example of a woman that got pregnant and when she returned from her leave, her job wasn't there anymore or it wasn't exactly the way that she left it. Um, of course, the April Bloomfield scenario, which we'll talk more about later in the show, but for those of you that don't know or who haven't, who haven't haven't been listening for a while, you know, like the people who have been here for a while know where I stand on this, right? But if I, I didn't actually have my usual reaction to this article, usually I kind of just toss it to the side. I get like this duh moment, right? Like the, the complete lack, I, I have a complete lack of understanding as to why anyone would do that to another human being, right? Like I get confused as how the stories go down because I couldn't ever bring myself to do that or even watch it happen. But then I realized I'm actually being really, really insensitive. So there are people who have gone through incredibly hard times. Yes, they've experienced the worst sides of people. And I come from an arena that of like zero, right? Like I I feel I fear that I'm not empathizing enough with these people. And I haven't really said this on the show before, but I actually had a girl in culinary school that really pressured coming on to me. So much so that it became really really awkward and I basically had to stop talking to her because it started to feel like harassment. I don't know. And as a guy, it feels so silly to say, right? Like, dude, how could you not say yes? And I didn't want that. And there is this weird double standard with it that girls say no and guys always say yes. But I can't even imagine having to deal with that every single day of your job, right? Like if this was school and it lasted a couple of weeks and we both moved on, she got the hint, right? But what happens if you want to stay at a restaurant for like two to four to six years? Um, I've highlighted it on this show before, and I'm going to say it again. We all know the golden rule, right? Treat others the way you want to, they, they, that you'd want to be treated, right? Swap that out for the oh so shiny platinum rule. Treat others the way that they would want to be treated. And it ultimately just comes down to respect, right? It comes down to having self-confidence in yourself. It has, it comes down to not being a dickhead to other employees, right? Like I would be, I would actually be genuinely curious to hear about how many of these sexual harassment cases come up because the harasser feels insecure at work because of how their manager or coworker treats them. Does that make sense? It's like a power game. There's, there's a scene in the movie Red Sparrow. If you guys haven't seen that movie, you definitely should. Um, but Jennifer Lawrence is one of the main actresses in it, and she's being sexually harassed at the academy that she's in, and she resists this guy coming onto her in the shower. So the academy teacher doesn't like that because they're all training to be people pleasers. So she makes Jennifer Lawrence stand in front of everyone in the movie and let this guy come onto her again. But this time, Jennifer Lawrence flips it. She actually like gets naked and asks for it instead. But the problem is now the guy can't get it up, right? Like he can't follow through with it because for him, it was about power. It was about feeling big and more important than somebody else. And so what I want to know is, how far do the ripples of our decisions go? If you talk shit to the Comey because he screwed up your prep, now he feels like shit and he wants to feed his ego, so he goes and harasses a female server. Do you know what I mean? And I'm definitely umbrellaing this situation. I'm not trying to assume that everybody does all of these things. Um... But I just, like, how often does that does this stuff happen? Um, it's why I put out the content that I do. Yes, I pitch, uh, I pitch it as content to improve your career, but it's so much more than that, right? Like, I want to give you confidence and self-awareness and empathy to other people. I can't expect 
to change your behavior if you're a sexual harassing monster, but maybe, just maybe, it will ripple out in other ways. So, did I have any other takeaways from this story? Not really. It's stuff we've already covered, and these articles need to continue to get written because for, like, you and me, like, maybe this is stupid common sense to not do any of these things, but for others, it the, the negative consequences of showing up in a career-ruining headline are motivation enough to kind of rethink their actions. So that's where I'm going to leave it with this. So that was heavy. Let's uh, let's switch gears, shall we? Uh, Alinea, Grant Atkins's three Michelin-starred powerhouse in Chicago, is going through a bit of a chef swap. So Mike Bagel, after being executive chef for six years, is stepping down. Simon Davies is going to be his replacement. So Mike Bagel was a sous chef when I staged at Alinea in 2011. Uh, he, of course, created the edible balloon dish, the green apple balloon dish. He's kept Alinea a force of modernist cuisine over the past few years. Uh, they haven't lost the three Michelin stars. They've stayed relatively relatively high on the world's 50 best list, if that's what we're going to use as our kind of measures of success. But he's taking some time off after the 20 years of service in the industry. But as per typical type A personalities, he's working on his vacation at the moment. He's heading to Mask in Mumbai for a pop-up, but he's also taking that time to travel and get some self-discovery time in. So also shoot, huge shout out to Simon Davies. He's been at Alinea since he was 19, and now he's becoming the executive chef. I can only imagine what that feels like. Um, but yeah, that's the, 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 uh, it moves on the, the, the restaurant moves on and the leadership changes and we just have to look forward to seeing how he's going to do. It seems like Grant is really giving him the freedom. I don't know if every, you guys hopefully all remember the clear pumpkin pie dish that happened last year. So that, that is, that is where it is. Uh, Repeve on Instagram says Elena is where you want to go next to eat or to work. That's where I'm curious. So in I Totally Called It news, Food & Wine just dropped a piece called The Five Reasons Why the Michelin Guide Should Return to L.A. And if you've been following this show, you know that I've covered most of all the new ambitious spots uh, opening down there, from Dialogue to Vespertine to Somni to Major Domo and more. I still haven't been to L.A., so it's really, really hard for me to talk about all these places and not want to immediately book a flight to go out there and try them. Uh, I need to go and just shoot like five this place called episodes. I have a huge list in LA, so I'm dying to go. But of the five reasons that the author Andy Wang says that LA, uh, the Michelin Guide should return to LA, um, and before I tell you those, I hope everybody knows that uh, LA used to have a Michelin Guide and then they lost it. Um, just so everybody, just so that's clear, so that everybody doesn't think that uh, Michelin has something against LA. But of the five reasons, uh, Andy Wang says one, everybody is coming here. Two, you can't ignore all the tasting menus. Three, you can't ignore all the big openings. Three, you can't ignore all the media attention. And five, you can't, I don't think I counted properly from one to five there, but five, you can't ignore the commitment and pedigree of these chefs. So, yes, I know some of those are kind of repetitive, but what he's essentially saying is that there's this perfect storm of kind of really, really skilled, excited chefs doing ambitious projects in a city that can handle it. And that's really, really important to say uh, because it's starting to snowball, right? It's frankly, at least in my opinion, making D.C. look like a joke. And Michelin decided that they were kind of a city. Michelin decided that D.C. was a city worthy of a Michelin guide, even without a restaurant that was awarded that three-star ranking. So I'm still firmly in the camp that there should be a region-specific guide to the U.S. instead of a city-by-city -city breakdown. 
Now, if they came out with that, I would have totally called it. But, you know, a Michelin guy coming back to LA, I've been saying it for a while, it needs to happen. But I don't see why not, right? Like, yes, Seattle and LA are far apart if we're talking about like doing a West Coast region, but Italy has its own Michelin guide, and that's a pretty far trek, don't you think? Plus, if we're talking about like OG Michelin guide dynamics, you could drive from uh, Seattle to LA to San Francisco and eat some pretty incredible food in going from Seattle down to Portland down to Napa and Sonoma all while putting those Michelin tires to work which for everybody that doesn't know that was the original reason why they came up with the Michelin guide to get people to drive out to like the French countryside but then you could actually start all over again from San Francisco and take Highway 1 all the way down to LA and swing over to Oakland and go down to Carmel by the sea and then end in LA with one of those fabulous tasting menus I'm just saying and then, just to give some more examples, the Midwest could be like Minneapolis and Kansas City and Chicago and Detroit, and then the South would have like Atlanta and Austin and Houston. I'm saying all of this because when it does happen, I just want to be on the record that I called it. But it just makes sense, Michelin. If you're listening, this idea is on me. I will take a small acknowledgement from the beginning of every little red book. Thank you very much. So next up, not so much a suggestion, but more a complaint, Bloomberg published a piece called, quote, at restaurants, tableside service has gone too far. What's up with that? So the article goes, it's, quote, it's hard to walk through a fine dining, a fine restaurant these days without jumping out of the way of a rolling cart. Dining rooms across the country have taken to presenting food to guests as if servers had magnets attached to their jackets, pulling them to tables, end quote. And some of us might be saying, yeah, and isn't that remarkable service? And the author, Kate Crater, argues that it might be too much of a good thing. So emphasizing, of course, the lure of social media uh, posting to the game, right? Like you're way more likely to snap a pic and post it to the gram if the server is carving a fish at your table. But she also touches on the economics of it all, quote, but it requires a certain level of skill to cut thick slices of pepper crusted beef in front of an audience and even more to execute a tender wild mushroom omelet and slide it onto a plate before the table of guests. Hiring and training those skilled servers costs money. Perhaps all the extra eggs that get cracked to practice are why the price of a grill omelet has gone up 52% from $24 to $38, according to Eater. So yes, in case you were curious, there is a $38 omelet floating around in the world. But there's a bunch of other hilarious quirks that come along with the act from like how people think their steak and tuna tartars should be seasoned, and even a restaurant that didn't want to use real ice cubes in their tableside cocktails, so they started using fake plastic cubes to imitate the sound, only to shockingly find that the drinks started coming out warm. What is wrong with you people? But overall, I empathize with both camps, right? From a business owner perspective, if Offered, if, if, if offering a tableside prepared dish can cause social media virality and increase your business by like doubling or even by double or even triple digit percents, the ROI of training those people and marking those prices up accordingly is 100% worth it. But as with most things that the originators do well, it's very easy to be a lackluster version of the original if you don't have the chops to execute it. If you remember my flavor and execution video, it's really risky to cook and plate something tableside because... When it hits, it really hits, right? You're flexing super hard on everybody. But if it doesn't hit, or if your seasoning is wrong, or if the banter that you're trying with the table isn't working, or if you have to go bankrupt because everyone is coming in to order that tableside salad only instead of the rest of the menu, it's really easy to tell a chef to not do that. So just be careful. The best tableside I've experiences I've personally had were part of these longer menus, right? Where it functions as a way to either interact with the chef, i.e. the Alinea dessert on the table, or when it's part of a longer flowing story and you can have one really uh, skilled and uh, 
charismatic front of house person come over uh, and like be a part of a longer flowing story. So I think of like 11 Madison Park's picnic basket presentation. Um, but what are your thoughts on tableside presentation? Let me know in the comments or tweet at me uh, wherever you're listening. Is it overdone? Do some things need to be fixed? Definitely give me a heads up when what you're thinking. Uh, also, if you have had the opportunity to do a tableside service at the restaurant that you're working at, I'd really be curious to hear about how that went. So lastly, to tie a bow on a story that's been developing uh, over the past couple of months, Alex Stupak's Empion Group is going to be taking over Ken Friedman and April Bloomfield's Midtown NYC Taqueria Salvation Taco. I really, really love that rooftop restaurant. If you're in New York City and you want access to a dope rooftop spot, especially when the weather's nice, I highly, highly recommend it. I was there two Septembers ago and Anna and I had a great time. But that's the story. If you aren't up to speed, April Bloomfield and Ken Friedman are dividing their holdings after the huge sexual harassment scandal that they went through, coupled with Mario Battalion in, in weird crossover moments. So essentially, Ken Friedman was doing the harassing. April Bloomfield knew about it, and she didn't say anything. But with that comes giving up the uh, Salvation Burger restaurant as well as Salvation Taco. But this story is about Alex Stupak, and he's going to be taking all of the 60-plus employees as well as the head chef and keep them in place and kind of rebrand the restaurant. I don't know exactly how it's going to look one, legally, and two, public-facing. He says it's going to, uh, he's going to turn it into, quote, an Empion al Pastor, which focuses on tacos, cocktails, and bar snacks from the Mexican and American traditions, end quote. So for me, as someone who grew up in this industry, hearing about, like, April Bloomfield and Mario Batali as such legends, it's really crushing to see this happen, but it just goes to show that so much is on the record right now, right? Like, the sizes of people's closets are shrinking, and it's definitely exposing so many people and making transparency a critical point. So I hope so many of you are thinking about it. I know I don't have to say that to some of you, but I, I, I still feel like I need to champion empathy and kindness and hard work and creativity and optimism and not tearing other people down. So I'll 100% be going to check out this new rooftop spot because it's not that I didn't like the decor on so many of Alex Dupac's places, but I feel like his food on that rooftop is just going to be like mind-blowing. So I'm very, very excited to go back to 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 that place. So last up, industry style. This is direct answer. It's usually a DM that you folks have sent me, direct message. Uh, this was on Facebook, Martin Charvat. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. We've been talking back and forth a little while, but what he said was, Hi, Justin, I'm about to apply for a stage at Noma in the beginning of September. Do you think you could give me any advice on how to approach it the best? Thanks a lot. And I didn't answer him directly. I told him that I was going to uh, cover it on the show. So thanks for your patience. Um... I don't know how the new Noma is, so I don't know how to speak to what the staging environment is there now. First, congratulations. I feel like it's way harder uh, to get into Noma right now as a stage than it was prior. Um, I don't know if he got in with their intern program. I know they usually take people on like a couple month long uh, stints, but don't, and this is advice from another entrepreneur that I follow where he talks all about not wanting to think that you as an individual or as a stage, more or less, can actually make an impact on that restaurant. And that sucks to hear, right? Because you go in optimistically and you pitch that in hopefully your interview that you're talking to the chef as is like, you want to impact the restaurant, blah, 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 blah. There is so much going on at Noma that you as a staying there for two weeks or a month or three months or however long you're going to stay there cannot um, impact. And my watch is going off. But 
what you need to keep in mind, like I, I think back to the Alinea story that we covered, right, where uh, Simon Davies was there for 19 years before he became executive chef, right? Like there's so many other different politics and dynamics that are at Noma right now that you need to just be very cognizant of, and you just need to try to focus on doing the best work that you can and use it as a network opportunity, more and a network and an observation opportunity, right? Like you, depending on where you, your skill level is, you may or may not um, appeal to a couple uh, people as far as like getting your skill level up. But if you're if you're if you're going in and you're thinking that you're going to change anybody's opinion about food it's 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 a very egocentric way to think about it so what you should be focusing on is like i have friends that i've staged at at other restaurants in the past that are still friends to this day for me so don't obviously make it a you know get a bunch of bros together because they're there for their work too but focus more on networking and how you can observe when i was at noma the biggest thing that i i I took away from was like the way of thinking the way that i would hear people have conversations and the questions they would ask each other and then just overall the vibe of being in that place it's 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 very similar to like when i get off the plane and and go on the streets of manhattan it's just a entirely different um way of thinking about it uh the energy is just infectious so being at noma is very similar it's also a lot of hours i don't know if that's also the same as when i was there but we would start at like 8 or 9 a.m and finish at 1 a.m it's definitely the longest hours i ever worked at a restaurant ever um so just be prepared for that i don't know exactly how long you're staying but focus more on the relationships and what you can gain from observing and ask as many thoughtful questions as you can um and then i don't know uh, three years down the road you're going to go work at a restaurant in sweden and you're going to see some guy that you met at noma um it's a very very good environment to be there and also you should eat there please eat there if you uh, aren't thinking about it i didn't eat there when i went to go stage there and i really really regret not eating there thank goodness a friend of mine got lunch reservations like two years after so i did get a chance to go eat at the old noma um but yeah, I think you'll be September. Will that be the game menu? It'll be the tail end of the vegetable menu. Regardless, you should go eat there. Uh, but those are just my thoughts. I hope I answered your question. I'm always happy to get DMs from you folks and answer the questions if I have some free time. Uh, but if you want to go deeper or talk through any of your ambitions or progressing your career or get that raise at work or build a personal brand or host pop-ups, I offer one-on-one coaching sessions. Um, if it's something you want to explore, check out justinconnacom slash coaching. Definitely allows me to go way deeper than just a back-and-forth uh, message. So really provide some value and help you make your next move. So in our non-industry story of the week, I have such I have such a horrible confession. I had I really had great intentions to do a non-industry story last week, but I was really under pressure to get the show out that day, and I forgot to research one. And I was like, I re- I script these out. So um, I I got to that section of the script, and there was nothing. And I was like, no, uh, I just forgot. So this week I have a non-industry story. I think I actually have two. Uh, but I'm first up. Mario Tennis for the Nintendo Switch is the thing. Mario Kart Aces is what it's called. It looks super fun. Um, I'm gonna check it out for sure. I I got major nostalgia vibes. I grew up playing Mario Tennis on the Nintendo 64, or was it the GameCube? It was Nintendo 64. But if you couldn't tell from this episode, not being on Twitch, I'm contemplating actually doing some gaming on Twitch with some friends, having more people over. I'm having more people over to my apartment for podcast recordings anyways, so I kind of want to make the most out of that and give you folks something to hang out and watch instead of like cooking and career stuff. But the second one is a podcast episode. If any of you are like me and love working with other people but want to figure out how to do it sustainably, I highly, highly recommend you check out Colin and Samir's podcast and creep on their creative partnership episode episode. 
So they are two filmmakers. So of course, I got some very niche advice about like YouTube and making movies and editing. But if you're working with front of house staff or a SOM, or maybe you're a chef and you have a butcher that you work with very closely, there's so much to be gained from that episode. So I'm super, super happy to recommend it to you. Uh, I highly uh, suggest that you go listen to it right after this. So just search Colin and Samir podcast. They have a, they only have a handful of episodes right now. Uh, so it's about creative partnerships. You can thank me later. So that'll do it for this week's show and episode 68. If you have stories that you want covered next week, shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. If you have questions for any of my upcoming guests, please check out that schedule and suggest new guests by visiting justinconnacom slash podcast. Roll the outro. Thanks for listening to the Emulsion Podcast. I appreciate your ears more than you know. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help sponsor the show, head on over to patreon.com slash justincana. Other ways you can help out right now include giving this show a review on iTunes so more people can find it. I also love seeing you folks liking and commenting on the video if you listen that way, or even just share this episode with a friend. Now is normally why I would tell you that my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here excuse excuse me <laughs>